Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very happy to have you here with me today. Okay, as you can probably hear, or you might hear or notice in my voice, um, something's a little off. I am struggling with seasonal allergies. Uh, the pollen count is up here in Maine, where I live, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful to see everything in bloom, but um, I've been waking up feeling like my head is six feet under the water, and the rest of the day feels like I'm just moving through quicksand. So if I sound a little cloudy or un less clear than normal, I apologize in advance. And um, ironically, or somewhat timely, I should say, uh, the theme of this episode that you're about to listen to is a talk I gave on the varieties of the sleepy experience in meditation. I've been, all year I've been covering and, and really looking into the difficult energies that meditators encounter when they practice. And of course, these energies also arise in people's lives. But um, of all of the difficulties that I have heard people complain about over the years, the two most common ones, like without fail, they almost come up in any introduction to meditation workshop I've given or in most Q&As. There's always a question or two about what to do with the mind that thinks too much or excessive thinking, the wandering mind. And there's always a question or two about people who feel like they're falling asleep in meditation. And as I get into the talk, not all low energy, drowsy, groggy states are symptoms of sleepiness. They can look like sleepiness, i.e. that you're, you kind of nod forward or pitch Forward, like you're going to fall over while you're sitting there. Um, but not all of them are sleepy. I mean, they're not all the same thing. They're not, they're not, they're not all arising to the same conditions or um, causes. So I try to map out in the talk several of the, the, the ones that I'm most familiar with and that I've come to see in my own experience. And I hope that some of the reflections I give help you get a better understanding of what might be going on for you when you experience low energy, uh, cloudy, groggy, unclear states, or it's kind of a feeling like you're, you're falling into a state of unconsciousness. Now, before I give the talk, I just want to give a warm welcome to anyone that's new to the show. Uh, if you're just stopping by and checking out this podcast, I want to warmly welcome you, and I just sincerely hope that some of the reflections that I share are of value to you and your practice and your life. And anyone that's been coming regularly, a regular listener to the, to the show, welcome back. It's always good to have you here. But to you, I speak directly. This is a free podcast. And if you have the means and the interest, those two things together, if you don't have the means and you don't have the interest, don't worry about it. But if you have the means and the interest to help out in the production of the show, you can do that in one of two ways. Um, we don't have a Patreon page or anything like that, but... You can either join our practice sangha, that's really an online weekly studio and suite of classes uh, that include meditation, yin yoga and qigong, and yang yoga. So there's four classes a week that we offer covering a kind of an integral practice of spiritual development so that you can join that practice community with us and practice along with us. And there's the, 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 the entry level into that uh, practice community is on a sliding fee. So um, you can go to, uh, through the link on, in the show notes 
and, and see what is involved in that. If you're not interested in practicing with us, totally okay. Still, please check out these podcasts for free. But there's also a suite of courses, online courses ranging about, from about 7 to 10 hours each that cover the basics of yin yoga, traditional Chinese medicine, yin meditation, and yang yoga. There's also a book on meditation that I co-wrote with my dear late friend Michael Brooks called The Buddhist Playbook. And all of the courses and that book are offered together as a bundle called the Sublime Sextet, or the Sublime Sextet. Uh, but you can purchase any of these individually too. And anything you, uh, any purchase you make is directly of benefit into supporting the podcast and our, our teaching in general, and we thank you in advance. One final point, though. I mentioned this book. Um, as I mentioned in a, in a specific episode that I dedicated to Michael Brooks, my, my late friend, who died tragically last year um, of a sudden blood clot, uh, there's a memorial bench that is being uh, built or constructed, I should say, that will be situated and placed at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. Insight Meditation Society, or IMS, is where I first met Michael in 2000, I believe 2000 or 2001. And with his mother, sister, and a few friends, we really agreed we wanted to honor the legacy of Michael's life and his work and really the vision of his heart with this bench at his spiritual uh, home at IMS. And she, his mother reached out to me recently uh, asking how we might go about uh, raising revenue to purchase the bench. And um, I let her know that I had been holding back money from the sale of the book to be used and uh, used for it, whatever kind of memorial for Michael that would be established. And I'm very happy to say that with the uh, the generous purchasing of the book from from you, the the bench is is covered. So the bench will be paid for. And if you are able to practice at IMS, I hope you'll be able to sit on that bench at some point in wherever it's situated in a natural setting, and that you'll feel really the direct connection between me and Michael to you and your practice, or something like that. I'm a little bit groggy as I, as I'm saying because of allergies, but. This, is, um, this means a tremendous amount to me that, um, that we're able to do this, and I just want to thank you for your support if you've been part of that. Okay, enough of the preamble. I now give you today's talk on the varieties of the sleepy experience. So for this evening's talk, um, sort of building on a theme that I introduced last week, which is this theme of the coordinates of our being or the axes of self, where I described we have a horizontal axis of being that um, exists and functions within time. So you know, the, our, our personality and our physical being gets born in time and it has a history, it develops, things happen to us. We develop likes and dislikes and fears and worries and hopes and aspirations. And all of that bundle of our being exists on this horizontal axis, which also 
um, is always being intersected, if, we're, if we awaken to it, it's always intersecting with a timeless dimension of our being or a transcendent dimension of our being or a big capital S sense of self, which is what I referred to last week as the vertical axis of our being. And uh, many of us are familiar with the horizontal. We don't, we don't really need to have um, that pointed out to us. It's the, it's the self we take ourselves to be when we think about ourselves. But the vertical aspect of ourself is one that's um, it's, it's quite subtle and, and can be elusive and, and can trip us up for a while in our practice. And one of the reasons uh, why I've been giving so much attention to focusing on the difficult energies of practice, namely the hindrances, it's because these hindrances, in a way, they obscure when they're present, when they're operative in our mind or heart, when these hindrances are present and, they're, and we've sort of uh, become enmeshed in them or we're blended with them or we identify with them or we take them to be who and what we are, these hindrances hook us and they obscure our apprehension of the transcendent. They, they, they obscure or, or cloud over our ability to recognize our, our big S self, our transcendent self, or the timeless dimension of, of existence that's right here and now. So traditionally, it's not described that way. The hindrances are traditionally described as obstacles to stillness. But the, the reason I described it as I did just now is that the way I experience stillness and the way I think of stillness is that stillness is the quality, one of the qualities of the vertical axis of our being. It's one, it's one of the qualities of, of our awareness nature or our true nature, if you will, or, or the, the awareness of uh, the nature of pure awareness in us. Um, and it, it's stillness through which the whole experience of ourself is moving through. So understanding and befriending the hindrances goes a long way to softening up our ability to rest into uh, and acknowledge the dimension of our vertical, timeless, still self. So far, we've been looking at the hindrance of, or the hindrances of desire, aversion, to so the mind of liking and disliking. And a few weeks back, we looked at the, the worrying mind or the agitated, anxious mind. Tonight, I want to spend a little bit of time speaking on the, the theme of the hindrance of uh, in Pali, the language of the Buddha's teaching in Pali is referred to as Tina Midda. And Tina Midda is translated as sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor. Um, in, in kind of layman's everyday parlance, sloth and torpor often gets reduced to sleepiness. But I want to suggest that that sleepiness is not the best translation for that. So if you practiced it all, if you've done a 25-minute sitting at some point in your life, and I know many of you, if not all of you have, I'm guessing you've all experienced this at some point. It's the energy where sometimes you feel like you're falling forward or like you're drifting off and you're catching yourself waking up from something. But it's a feeling of checking out and, and, and nodding off. And that's often attributed as sleepiness. But in tonight's talk, what I, what I really want to try to do is sort through different varieties of this energy or different manifestations of this energy and, and try to suggest that they're not really all caused or driven or indicating the same dynamic. 
So we tend to lump everything as, as this kind of physical, organic sleepiness. And what I'm going to try to get in, I, I suggest tonight is that that, that can be true. There is a, a kind of an organic uh, physical component to sleepiness or sloth and torpor, but there's often um, mental states or psychological states that get our energy to drain away, drain out of our practice or, or, or get us into kind of a dull, groggy, disinterested state. And that's when it really becomes problem, problematic. So one way that sleepiness or sloth and torpor can manifest is in what I would refer to as legit fatigue, legitimate fatigue. This could be because you didn't get a good night's sleep. This may be because you, um, uh, you maybe ate, ate something that, that, that kind, of, kind of zaps your energy. Or as I'm finding right now, as the, uh, the seasons change here where I am in Maine and the pollen count is going up, my allergies are kicking in. And with allergies, I'm waking up feeling utterly blasted, <laughs> just completely zapped of energy. Thinking clearly is a real challenge. Uh, getting organized is a real challenge. Staying uh, present to uh, you know, just following a simple to-do list is a challenge. These are all manifestations of this, this organic sense of, of fatigue that allergies bring visit me or visit upon me. And um, for all of those forms, le the legit fatigue, um, just know that you know that that's not a hindrance in the sense of, of of as I see it, it's not a hindrance to the practice. Like we can work, we can work with that energy and, and really let it be. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll give more sort of antidotes and strategies for working with these energies in a moment. But there's just know that there could be legitimate fatigue in your system and to be gentle and compassionate with that. Another form of, of, of sloth and torpor um, is what I would refer to as uh, beginner's fatigue. And by this, I mean that when people start to meditate, it's usually the first time in their life where they endeavor to relax and be alert at the same time. So, you know, normally when we relax, we start relaxing with kind of checking out or going to sleep. So say you take a, a relaxing restorative yoga class, you might drift off. Let's say you like take, um, you're reading something and, you, and, you, and you're relaxing on the couch and you might drift off and, into, into sleep. This is where the, the, the association with relaxation carries us into the, the, the state, the territory of sleep itself. So we don't have a lot of training. We don't have a lot of um, practice with remaining alert while also relaxing. And so as a result, in, at least in the initial stages of practice, um, we can really uh, tilt a little bit more into uh, the, the, the sleepy side of the thing just by relaxing too much. Um, now, that works its way out with time. And so I wouldn't, again, this is one that I wouldn't worry too much about. If you find you're nodding off and you're just new to the practice, stay with it for a while. And you're, I think your mind and being will start to calibrate to the ability to really relax while sitting and also balance that with a sense of uh, easeful alertness uh, in, in, in your meditation. Uh, 
So this is again beginner's fatigue um, that that a lot of people uh, complain about, and they start they think, how can I meditate? I can't be present if I'm always drifting off. And this is where I just I encourage patience. Just be patient with it for a while, and and in good due time with with the again with the, some of the strategies I'm about to take off or mention with with time the mindfulness itself will start to balance the equation between relaxation and alertness. But there's another um, form of sloth and torpor, or um, it's actually really not sloth and torpor so much. It's a different, it's another manifestation of what looks like going to sleep when, when really it isn't going to sleep at all. And that manifests um, when the mind gets very absorbed in something and loses touch with the kind of the peripheral context of where you are. Like the, so let's say you're, you're, you're meditating and it, you, could be get, you could get really focused on the breath or you could get really focused on the sensation of in your body, with your hands touching your lap or your body sitting on the cushion, or you could get really focused on the sound of, of silence or you might just get really focused on a, a train of thought. Your mind can get really absorbed and, um, and engaged in a topic or a theme or a or memory or anything really. But the absorption, when, when the mind gets very absorbed, it may lose peripheral awareness of the context of what's going on. And one of the things that can go offline in that kind of absorption is um, the, your kinesthetic uh, proprioceptive awareness of where you are. Literally, you kind of lose track, like the, 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 the felt sense of the body can, can go offline or, or, or fall off the radar. And as that happens, you might find yourself falling forward like you are nodding off to go to sleep. Although it's not, your mind in, in going forward is actually very brightly focused on what's happening. So this takes a while to, to like, the reason I'm mentioning these different forms of what look like sloth and torpor is that it takes time in your practice to get familiar with all the different ones to really get a sense of what's going on for you in any given moment or any given example. But for me, and this is, I'm just sharing this out of my own practice, it, there was, there's times where I will really look at something going on in my practice. And, and, and if I find myself nodding off, I, I try to track the the sequence of events that leads up to the nodding forward. I really try to take a sharp look at what what leads up to the experience of of quote unquote drifting off or falling asleep. And usually, what I, I what happens is I find myself getting very absorbed, as I was saying, very absorbed in something, and then suddenly I find myself my body falling forward. But going at, just before the body falls. The mind is very sharply focused and alert. And I, I, I remember complaining about this to uh, one of my teachers. And she said, oh, this is what, you know, this is what Sayadaw Upandita refers to as sinking mind, where the, 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 the balance between um, a, focus of atten a focus of attention and a, a broad, like what I'm saying, peripheral awareness of context around that focus those get out of whack a little bit where there's so much focus that you lose sight of the context around and the mind sinks into the experience and loses context. And there's a sense of falling forward. It's not a problem. Just it's sort of what she said was just be aware of it. 
And the awareness itself, mindfulness, has a balancing uh, um, function on that dynamic. Meaning that the mindful, when you become aware that that's what's happening, it 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 almost automatically starts to recalibrate um, the balance of, of of presence and 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 concentration, and and that sinking mind starts to to even itself out, and it happens less. But it's it's quite common at, at various stages in practice that I've noticed, and um, I just want to mention that. The main form, however, the main form of sloth and torpor that I want to speak tonight about are the, the kind of the psychological states that breed a kind of heavy, groggy, drowsy feeling in the body. And the and they come with a, a mind states that also include disinterest, boredom, discouragement or apathy for practice so again when we're when we're sitting and we're we're trying to look into our experience closely it can be very frustrating when the mind goes into a groggy cloudy unclear um, confused state of mind where you don't feel like you have very much agency you don't feel like you can control it you're kind of literally you feel i felt drug when this happens um, <clears throat> the thing here is though that, and, and, and I, I was trying to think through this because I've, I've watched it so many times where it's, it's one, one example or metaphor I give for this. It's it, sometimes it's like being in an airplane where you hit some you know, like choppy, turbulent weather, turbulent air. And in the turbulence, you know, you're, you're in it for a while and then suddenly it, it, you get out of it and it, it, you, you're in a clear zone of, of, of smooth flight again. And um, sleeping or sloth and torpor is a bit like this, where there you are, sincerely minding your own business, not making a problem, just trying to notice what's happening moment by moment. And out of nowhere, you, you this this cloud of heavy, dull, groggy, you know, you you just get sort of enveloped by this this very often somewhat unpleasant state although if you look into it you might even find that there's there's there are shades of pleasantness within it but it, it often is felt to be unpleasant and it's particularly embarrassing if you're on retreat or practicing a non-socially isolated setting you know you're sitting around other people and so you know you're you're falling forward leaning to the side falling jerking back worried that you're going to crash and, and and bump into somebody but then you can also just come right out of it and something like, and that's what I, you know, I've seen this multiple times now over many years of practice, but you can be very much in that state. And suddenly it's like the clouds lift, like the, the turbulence fades and suddenly whew, you're just smooth sailing again. You're, you're, you're at the right altitude, so to speak. So it's, it's important to remember that when, when this energy visits us, um, I I have a, a suspicion, and I'm holding this as a provisional way to explore it, but I have a suspicion that the kind of sloth and torpor that the Buddha saw as uh, being a, an obstacle to the path is not the legit organic sleepiness that just needs 
you know, more rest or time to, to recover and build up a deficiency of energy. But I think he's referring to more of the psychological states of mind that breed a kind of either boredom, desp despondency, or complacency, or apathy for practice, not really appreciating um, that, that, that within that state, it's possible to wake up and actually to have a very bright quality of energy brought to bear on these states. So the first strategy, I'm just going to give you three strategies, and, and hopefully these will be somewhat simple so you can remember them as we go into the practice. But the first thing to be aware, like the first strategy I'd say, is when you become aware that this heavy, dull energy of the body or the disinterest and complacency or boredom of the mind is present, when you become aware of them, that's the practice. That's when you when you are aware of their presence. That is the first important moment of mindfulness. It's mindfulness itself that recognizes that this energy is present. So you know there's there's often this reflexive interpretation and and framing of the energy that it's a problem. It's something to be gotten rid of. And if you remember from when I read um, a bit about how to work with desire or the Buddha's reflections on working with desire, he says, you know, you want to know when the difficult energy is present. We also want to know when it's absent. We want to know what gives, what fuels it and, and brings it to be, what um, allows us to release from it and what sort of um, promotes a, an ongoing development of understanding of these energies. So it's not to get rid of it. This is, not, this is not an obstacle to overcome. It's a dynamic within us to fully look into and understand. So the, just the, rec the, the immediate recognition when it's happening, and, and, and often we, we know it's happening because we might fall forward <laughs> or, or, or not. So when you catch yourself, you, know, you don't have to button yourself up and like splash cold water on your face and rub your, ear, your earlobes and, and uh, toothpicks in your eyes to keep your eyes open if you're sitting with eyes open. It's just the first moment of recognition is, is mindfulness coming on board knowing, oh, this is the energy of, 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 of this, sloth and torpor or drowsiness or, or fogginess or confusion or heaviness. To just let that much be known. It, it's like this. So lo and behold, the first strategy is just to let mindfulness register what it is. But to really get to know it, to really um, become more familiar with these energies, and I would say to really attenuate the, the tendency of these energies to create a perceived problem in our practice, I think mindfulness alone needs to be paired with another quality of mind, which in the list of factors of mind the Buddha praised that support waking up and, 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 and a, a clarity of understanding, the next factor of mind after mindfulness on this list is the, the factor of investigation, of investigating the energy, of looking deeply with curiosity and interest. And I, I, I recommend this particularly for some of the psychological states that might be categorized as complacency, you know, feeling like, oh, I, 
I've been doing this for a while. I don't really need to, you know, I've been, I've done 10 retreats. I've sat for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I don't really need, I've, I've been around the block enough. I've been to Asia a little. I, I have, I have a Zafu in every bedroom of my house. I meditate whenever I can, you know, that sort of, overconfident and complacent a view that it's just something that you need to get past or it's not important to look at but to really to work with complacency or the flip side or to work with boredom to assume boredom sort of assumes there's nothing of interest within this state there's no intrinsic value or or nothing to be uh, learned or extracted from the state um, to really look into that closely with fresh curiosity or fresh attention or beginner's mind. Um, one of my last interviews that I, I published, it was a republish of a conversation I had uh, last year with the art artist and art teacher and author, Jenny O'Dell. One of the things that uh, she said during the interview, she said, to me, the only habit worth designing for is the habit of questioning one's habitual ways of seeing. And that is what artists, writers, and musicians help us do. So the only habit worth designing for is the habit of questioning one's habitual way of seeing. And this questioning the habitual way of seeing is very much um, emphasized in, in certain contemplative traditions. Most notably, it's, it's, it's sort of the, 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 the central practice of certain styles of Zen meditation. Notably, Zen meditation in Korea, Korean Zen. And as I was reflecting for this talk, um, I remembered a very famous encounter between a Korean Zen master and a Tibetan uh, Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, two highly adept realized beings on stage um, having kind of a conference of the minds or a meeting of the minds, if you will. And I think the the present the, the people that put on this 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 encounter between these two teachers they they placed some flowers uh, to to decorate the stage and there was a basket of fruit on on one of the tables next to the Zen teacher and at one point uh, the interviewer asked the person that the MC the person hosting the evening said um, to the Zen teacher how would you describe the Dharma how would you how how do you describe the Dharma. And the teacher picked up one of the oranges in the basket of fruit and held it up. And then he looked at the Tibetan teacher and he said, what is this? And the Tibetan teacher kind of <clears throat> looked over his shoulder, I imagine, um, but didn't answer anything. And, um, and then the Korean said again, what is this? What is this? And after some back and forth for a while, the, 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 the Tibetan, through the translator, says, don't they have oranges in Korea? <laughs> and, and the thing is, in Zen, they're, they're questioning every assumption we make with our conceptual mind about what things are. So we look very deeply into anything, whether it's a flower, our breath, an orange, and when we look past our conceptualization of the world, a new understanding, a new new dimension of our of our experience opens up. 
And that's what I think they're really getting at in the Zen tradition. But the point is to really have a, a, a burning zeal of investigation, if we can, for whatever we're encountering, to, to treat nothing with kind of the, 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 the attitude of it's just an orange or it's just an itch or it's just a groggy state or it's just to, to, to remove the, the, the qualifier of just and to really look with fresh attention, to look past or, or listen through the conceptualizations and, and thoughts we have about it, to encounter it anew. So in, it, like bringing a curious, wholehearted, sincere interest in what's occurring is a way to help transform what we might take as a difficult psychological state like boredom or disinterest and transform it into and bring it into the fire of our practice so that it becomes workable. It becomes just another experience that we can deepen our understanding of ourselves and the, the nature of our, our relationship to the world through. Now, the, the final um, strategy, I think, relates to the psychological states of discouragement. So another way that I find that I can get kind of overwhelmed with a heavy energy or the way I can get overwhelmed by fatigue or a sense of, 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 of dullness and, and heaviness is when I feel either discouraged or overwhelmed. And um, discouragement is often born of unconscious or implicit expectations about what should be happening. And, and this, this comes up at, at various stages throughout one's practice. And I would say I'm going to be surprised if it doesn't visit me more in the future going, going forward. It's just something that it's sort of a, a pattern that comes back through one's practice life again and again and again, where we think we start to get it. And when we start to get it, we think there's certain things should be happening. We get start to get expectations about what a, a good practice should be like. And then those expectations breed disappointment and discouragement if they don't get met. And that discouragement can really zap or drain the energy we have for practice. It can drain our enthusiasm for practice because we feel like we're not um, developing in the way that we, we imagine we should be. Whenever I think about expectations, I, I always try to share that um, at the Insight Meditation Society, where I've done a lot of practice, I know many of you have visited there as well, um, there is a, uh, a central stairwell in, in, the, in, the, in the central part of the building leading up to the second floor. And in the central stairwell, there is a, 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 a tall calligraphy, uh, Chinese calligraphy hanging. And at the bottom of it, there's just a, a little bit of, of text that says, Try to expect nothing, and everything will open up to you in this way. Or every, it's either open up to you or everything will reveal itself to you in this way. But try to expect nothing, and everything will reveal itself to you in this way. So it's, now we could, we could have a whole session about the expecting mind the mind that expects, but it, it's, it's a really important pattern of, of mind that we want to um, 
be interested in if it arises in our practice. And it will, I'm guessing. It, it's, it's arisen for me multiple times throughout my life and my practice life. And, and whenever it does, it, it can make, make practice um, feel difficult, challenging. And, I, and, and, and then the, that, those difficulties, that sense of difficulty really obscures the natural quality of stillness and presence that's right here, right now. So one way, in addition to, to looking into expectations and, and maybe a sense of discouragement, another way uh, of, of working with that kind of psychological state of feeling like you're not developing or, or, or moving um, in the right direction is to check in with the basic premise of the practice. And this is where I feel like talking to a friend or talking to a teacher can be very helpful. I can't tell you how many times uh, whenever I feel like I've gotten into a corner with these energies, a teacher's reminder, a friend's reminder that the practice isn't about having special states of experience. It's not about collecting better and better states of mind. It's not like going to the buffet and eating only the pleasant foods. Practice is about understanding the nature of all states in one way, is one way of putting it. So rather than feeling like we have to push something away, get rid of something, get beyond something, attain something different, to remember, as Joseph Goldstein often says, practice is just to relax back and rest to a quality of awareness that is fully present to what's arising. Another way of saying this is the only experience to have in your meditation is the experience that you're having when you're having it. The only experience to have is the one you're having. Now that takes, it's super easy to say, right? <laughs> but it's, I remember hearing that on my very first retreat and it, it, it really has become the backbone of my practice. To remember the only experience to have is this one. And that, that in a way frees the mind of expectations and opens oneself or opens my mind to the simplicity of holding just what's here. So another way of saying this is, you know, work with your experience one moment at a time. And this is where actually I, th I find um, if even if there isn't a, an access to a teacher or uh, a, a conversation with a friend, when I've been on retreat, I found, because you can't also always talk to someone when you want to talk to them on retreat, but um, just the presence of everybody else practicing and noticing everybody else taking one step at a time, everybody else taking one bite at a time, everybody else moving calmly and smoothly in a relaxed way, being fully present to what's happening. There's a osmotic dynamic whereby that, that their practice becomes a teaching of reminding me that there's nothing else to get beyond. 
that it's all just a sense of, it's a, a process of settling into the immediacy of here and seeing just what's happening right now as clearly as possible. So the final um, strategy, if you will, or the final way of working with um, sloth and torpor or this dullness of, of being that can, can arise is to hold it with care. You know, to really bring in a, an affective heart quality of care. And that's something that, again, Upandita impressed upon me, um, but many other teachers have, have, have intoned it in different ways, that if we're just going through things, our practice in kind of a routinized way of watching the breath as an exercise of, of trying to control, or um, if we're just going through the motions in a way, like I got to sit down for 20 minutes before it so I can get my check the meditation off my to-do list before I get on with my email and then all the other calls I have to make and yada, yada, yada. Rather than just kind of going through the motions, and this is how I'll begin the meditation tonight, to really invoke a sense of deep care of attention. What does it mean to hold whatever is present in your being right now with, with, with tremendous care? And whenever I've done that, and it's really a heart quality. It's not so much a cognitive and uh, mental intention, but it's a heart quality of how, what does it mean to hold something with care? When I've, whenever I've done that, and I, I encourage you to just check it out yourself, but when I've done that, it, it really evaporates that dull disinterest. Because when I care, whatever I care about, suddenly, just like, Sang Sun, the Zen teacher, said when he holds up that orange, what is this? When you look at it with care, the ineffable mystery of all things suddenly springs forward. And that mystery is very enlivening. Okay, I hope that talk um, didn't put you to sleep. <laughs> I know that can happen sometimes, but I hope that my reflections on sleepiness um, help expand your exploration and understanding of your own relationship and, and, and clarity around these, this very difficult energy, really. Um, but if you can remember that the only experience to have in your practice is the one that you're having, that alone really has transformed uh, over the years my difficult wrestling with this, this, this challenging energy of, of groggy, drowsy sleepiness. Again, if you take interest in supporting the podcast, check out the links I left for you in the show notes for either participating in our online practice community called the Sangha, or uh, you might be interested in some of the various online courses we offer. Either way, thank you for your support. I um, really appreciate it and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Until then, take care, be well, stay safe, and practice on.